Welcome to another episode of the Arcananth podcast. It's your host, Michael, here again, and this is the podcast all about human beings, their societies, their history, their institutions, their cultures, and their politics. Today, we have a sociologist on the show. I welcome to the podcast, Matthew May. Matt, are you there? I'm here, and thanks for having me. Hi, Matt. Uh, how are you doing, and where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm doing well. I am calling in from Oakland University, um, which is about 35 miles northwest of Detroit. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, do you mind sharing like what your um, official role at Oakland University is? And you know, is the end of November like a very busy time for you and your colleagues? Sure. So I am an assistant professor of sociology in a department of sociology anthropology, social work, and criminal justice. So we have a lot of different fields represented. Mm -hmm. uh, November is definitely a busy time. Um, we have one more day of classes before, before Thanksgiving break, mm -hmm. and then one week of classes after we come back, and then it's finals time. So it's a pretty wow. pretty hectic time of year around here. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, just before the holidays, right? Right. A lot to get done and not a lot of time to do it. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, you know, it's really cool to be speaking with you because we previously haven't had someone on who works in sociology and social work. And, you know, you're, you're our first guest. Well, I'm happy to be the first. Yeah. I guess a good starting point would be like, how would you characterize the broad areas of sociology that exist out there? And, and where does your work fit in among the disciplines? So sociology, I like to say is, you know, about as broad as it gets because sociologists study every aspect of human behavior from those micro interactions between two people to macro social institutions that are present in every society. Um, we obviously have a lot of overlap with anthropology. Uh, I'm in a department that includes both disciplines. Um, a lot of cultural anthropologists have influenced how sociologists view the world. Uh, I specifically focus on religion. Um, but one of the great things about sociology is we have people in our department studying education, people studying drugs and alcohol, use and abuse, people who study death and dying, people who study love and relationships. Mm -hmm. Basically, if it involves human sociologists, study it. Right. As you were listing those things, I was thinking that, you know, they all sound like really important topics. When sociologists are developing their research questions, are they usually driven by like the current events and, and sort of like the needs of society around them a lot? Or are there also research driven um, sort of theoretical reasons for why someone might choose to do a certain study? I think that's kind of a, a both and. I think... Things happen in our world that inspire people to understand why. And so sociologists are always trying to figure out, you know, what explains recent events, recent phenomenon. Um, you know, a lot of research came out around the 2016 election or in the subsequent years to try and explain, you know, voter turnout and how so many polls may have, you know, found the results didn't uh didn't fit with their expectations or were within that margin of error. So, you know, things like that can inspire research. The Black Lives Matter movement certainly has, you know, inspired a lot of social movement scholars to do research uh, in that area. Um, I think also, though, we tend to study ourselves a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and this may come out if we, uh, you know, get to talking about some of my research. But I think we ask questions that are relevant in our own lives. And, you know, maybe unlike... Uh, chemist or a biologist or, you know, somebody who works with things that are 
you know, at least from my perspective as a sociologist, it's harder to see the connection to, to human life. Yeah. A lot of us in sociology are, uh, you know, interested in explaining how we ended up like we mm-hmm. are. Yeah. Interesting. Um, what was the initial impetus for you to work in sociology to begin with? So sociology, generally speaking, I kind of came to out of accident. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do coming out of high school, going into undergrad. Um, I thought law enforcement seemed interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I described my apartment earlier, uh, you may have caught criminal justice as one of the areas that's in there. There's also a lot of overlap between criminal justice and sociology. Um, in my department, I kind of like to think sociology is the glue that holds all these disciplines together because you'd probably never find an anthropology and criminal justice department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in that sort of same vein, I pursued criminal justice at a small liberal arts school where that meant majoring in sociology. Yep. And as I took some sociology classes, especially uh, theory, um, research methods, sociology of gender, I started to realize I actually liked those classes more than the criminal justice classes I was taking. Mm-hmm. And at some point I realized I should probably go to graduate school for this and focus just on sociology. Um, and in the meantime, I had also taken some religious studies classes and realized that a sociology of religion class and a focus might be what I'm most mm-hmm. interested in. Did you have a good time when you were uh, studying at the time? And, you know, would you say that there were like any like major challenges when you were doing that? Uh, as an undergrad or? Yeah, well, maybe as both, like an undergrad or a graduate student. As an undergrad, I, I don't think I was truly committed or focused to the classes I was taking. Um, I, I was an athlete and that was kind of my first priority, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, but once I got to graduate school, I realized that, you know, I had a passion for sociology and for doing research of my own and finally taking classes around the things I was interested in most. You know, I enjoyed what I was reading and doing and thinking about questions I wanted to pursue. And that was, you know, certainly there were challenges along the way. Um, perhaps I, you know, should have being more committed to my undergraduate classes and it would have better prepared me for graduate school, but I, I got over those hurdles, I think. <laughs> right. Um, I want to know like about, um, yeah, I guess some recent uh, studies that you have done, like can you describe some of the things that you found during your, your latest work? Sure. So um, a lot of my research focuses broadly on the relationship between religion and health or stress. Um, And so I kind of look at this from two angles. One is comparing the religious and the non-religious, but recognizing that those are not two monolithic groups either. There's a lot of variety to what it means to be religious, just as there's a lot of variety to what it means to be not religious. Um, Within the not religious, for instance, you have people who are convinced atheists who know in their you know mind that God does not exist, but you have people that aren't so certain. Yeah, and the same is true of the religious. And so I kind of look for variation in their experiences as it relates to health and well-being. Mm-hmm. The other side of my research looks at work-family balance. This is an area that you know causes stress for all people, mm-hmm. you know, as they try to balance a demanding job and the hours that are not always conducive to having a, you know, committed, involved family life and all the responsibilities that come with having children. 
in a you know a modern world and getting them to all their activities. And this disproportionately falls on mothers and women. And so some of my research looks at how religion may help people cope with some of those stresses or may exacerbate them. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, so I guess we can start with the with looking at stress and uh, looking at health in uh, religious and non-religious people, um, when you are setting out to do this sort of uh, research that asks these questions, what sort of preparation do you need to do before you uh, create your study or design your so, study? Sociology, you know, we rely on a lot of different uh, types of data. Um, some people collect their own data through surveys and interviews and ethnographies. Um, some people rely more heavily on secondary data. And a lot of my research to this point has been based on secondary data. Um, and I will say that, you know, you asked me earlier about, you know, some challenges in coursework. One of the challenges I face in research is finding good secondary data mm-hmm. that has all of the questions that I want. And you're never going to find a perfect data set mm-hmm. if you didn't create it yourself. And so, you know, I haven't necessarily been able to do the exact projects I've wanted to do up to this point, often because I'm limited in terms of what's available in the data that I'm using. Right. Like that's the trade-off because you don't have necessarily like all the money or the time and resources to um, collect your own data. Exactly. Um, And so for my, my research on the the religious and the unaffiliated and all the people in between all of those projects to this point have been based on secondary data where the questions I've started with often evolve as I find the data source I'm going to use and think about what variables are available to me and, and how I can, you know, make them fit into what I'm trying to focus on or trying to Mm -hmm. answer. Yeah. Now, I have also collected my own data, uh, both for my dissertation research, um, which was kind of separate from from the two areas I'm focusing on now, um, and also a project I have ongoing right now studying uh, working moms, um, which presents all new challenges in and of itself. <laughs> Trying to schedule an interview with a working mom who has no time as it is, uh, is, is nearly impossible. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But I'm slowly, uh, you know, getting more and more interviews and, you know, in that case, I'm able to ask the questions I want to ask and, and see how, how religion sort of fits into this. So mm-hmm. finding, finding data is always the, the starting point for me and has definitely been my, my biggest challenge as a researcher. Right. When you're looking at these data sets, um, so what questions are you, you know, really curious about like answering? And you know, when you're looking at these data sets, what are you looking for that will give you the data that you need? Right. So... When it comes to studying social life, one of the things we're always interested in is causal relationships. We want to know that X precedes Y. And oftentimes, surveys are done at a single point in time, or what we call cross-sectional studies. Um, so you can't always determine time order from these. You don't know, you know if their religion happened before their mental health got worse, or if mental health got worse and they left religion or increase their participation. So it can be difficult to tease those things out. Mm-hmm. So the best data sets are typically those that, you know, follow people over time. You have, you know, a survey that was conducted in one year and another year or two years later, they followed up and then you can actually determine, okay, which variable came first. And that's sort of the ideal situation. Yeah. Um, because that's not always possible though, 
typically I'm, I'm looking for things like, uh, you know, did the survey ask questions about their experiences at an earlier age? Um, one of the, you know, data sets I've used most is the general social survey. Um, and for my purposes, it's, it's nice. It has a question about people's religious affiliation uh, at age 16 and then their current religious affiliation. So at the very least, I, I can tease out if if people, you know, left religion from the time they were 16 till now, uh, if they are still affiliated or or if they joined, if they weren't affiliated at 16. Mm-hmm. And there are certainly problems with that. You know, some of the people filling out the survey are, you know, 75, 80 years old. It's possible they left and came back multiple times in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know it's you know it's what we have, and for for the most part, it's it's been an effective way to to think about affiliation and disaffiliation with mm-hmm. religious communities. When it comes to like the the mental health side, the other variable, how do you um, what are you looking for there? And is it is it always like available that you can look at? You know, maybe how people are experiencing depression or like hopelessness when you look at mental health. Yeah. So um, there's a handful of sort of standard questions that that appear on a lot of surveys um things like happiness so so it's also you know important i think we talk about mental health as you know sort of always framed around this idea of depression but you know mental health can be positive and negative mm-hmm. so i look at things like happiness life satisfaction well-being um and there's a there's a few standard questions around those you know one example would be how satisfied are you with your life these days and people you know give a score ranging from one to ten um, the other side, of course, is the the more negative, you know, experiences of anxiety, depression. Uh, one study uh, that I've done uses a uh, a combination of three items, um, asking about people's experiences with depression, hopelessness, and worthlessness in the past twelve months. Um, so, you know, how often have they experienced these feelings? And people that you know experience them more get higher scores. People that experience them less or not at all get lower scores and then you know kind of lay out all the potential scores on that from mm-hmm. from zero didn't experience any of these things to three you know experienced all right. of them uh when it comes to these um surveys like how, how are they put together and why were they put together in the first place um i think you know people want to know about social life and it's not just sociologists that, that make use of these um the general social survey is a, you know, publicly available national data set put out by the University of Chicago's National Opinion Research Center, hmm. uh, and it's been conducted since 1972. Um, at this point, every other year, there's a there's a new wave that comes out, and it's a new representative sample of people, and we can, you know, not only look at the 2018 data set, for instance, and see, you know, what are some things going on in social life, but we can see trends over time, you know, have attitudes toward same-sex marriage changed since the 1970s, have, uh, you know, are people, one of the, you know, in terms of religion, we see more and more people identifying as unaffiliated or or not a part of any religious group. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's changed dramatically in the last 10, 15, 20 years. You know, it used to be about eight to 10% of people said they were not religious. And I think people kind of assume that meant atheist Mm. today, nearly 25% of people say they're not religious, but interestingly, a lot of those people still believe in God. Mm. Um, So, you know, things like that tell us something about changes in social life that, you know, without 
prior data on this, we, we wouldn't yeah. know. When you're looking, when you're dissecting this data, are there like um, assumptions or, you know, caveats that you kind of have to bear in mind? Uh, I'm reminded of like when I went for a year abroad and I, I lived in Copenhagen in Denmark and I did take an anthropology uh, class uh, of, of Danish society. Um, and we talked about religion for a while and it was said that like in a recent census back when I was there like seven years ago, they said that like over 90 or, or over 80 or 90% of people would identify themselves as like Protestant uh, Christian. Um, but uh, from from reading uh, articles and from speaking to the professors, like the professor would uh, describe how even though a lot of people put that down as um, in the census, they're not they're not actually uh, all homogenous in how devout they are. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, like what, what assumptions are you having to bear in mind when you look at your data set? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the Denmark and some of the Scandinavian countries are considered the most secular places in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, you know, people might still identify as, as Protestant. And I think, you know, to the point I mentioned earlier about it's been the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've seen this dramatic increase in people identifying as unaffiliated. I think one explanation might be that people always had doubts, might've, you know, not really felt like they fit into their religious groups, but felt uncomfortable saying that. Yeah. And as more people were open about it, more people than willing to say, yeah, yeah, that's me too. You know, that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's one possibility. Now, to the other side of it, you know, people identifying as Protestant but being secular. Um, We see this a lot in Latin America, too. Uh, Many of these societies described as nominally Catholic, where, you know, just to be a part of that country, sort of your national identity comes with being Catholic, but nobody practices, nobody's going to church. But, you know, maybe the rituals happen in the home. And so this kind of speaks to what I was saying earlier. There's so much variety in both religious belief and non-belief. And I think, you know, it's problematic to just compare these as sort of two monolithic groups. They are, you know, very much uh, distinct, but also at the same time, you know, there can be a lot of overlap. You can have somebody, you know, who's sitting in the pews every week who doesn't believe at all and somebody who's never present in the organization, but is convinced that God exists and, you know, has certain of their beliefs. And so (laughs) I think, you know, a lot of times in my own research, I I try to focus on questions that maybe get us beyond just affiliation and disaffiliation. Um, One of my, the paper I mentioned earlier that, that uses the scale of, of mental health outcomes as, as my dependent variable, I'm interested in people who have considered dropping out of organized religion Hmm. and then subsequently because it is, you know, it does happen to be a data set that has data over, you know, multiple years or follows people over time. I can see several years later, how many of those people actually left and how many of them actually stayed. Right. And so then we can start to sort of tease out some of the differences between the varieties of belief and participation that people have. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, this is just like an aside, but I'm curious, like, do we know a lot about like why people consider dropping out of religion? Sure. So that paper was, you know, heavily influenced by 
a paper written by a sociologist uh, by the name of Nicholas Vargas, who used the same data set and was predicting who considers dropping out and then subsequently who actually leaves. Um, obviously, you know, perhaps no surprise that doubt is the, the biggest single factor. You know, if people have any doubts that their, their, you know, faith is true or the messages they're hearing from the pulpit are, are valid, then, then they're most likely to leave. But there's also some social characteristics as well. Um, people who are, would identify as politically liberal are more likely to drop out. Um, people that experience some type of crisis, be it financial, divorce, death of a loved one, those can sort of have two different effects. Some people will turn to religion yeah. in those instances for support. Some people might find that their religion is not supportive, though, and they may be more likely to leave. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are numerous factors that, that would predict both why someone would consider leaving and then ultimately why they leave. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more interested in, you know, once they've checked those boxes, what are the subsequent effects on their their health and well-being? Yeah, fascinating. Uh, and and you know what was what were the effects then on people in terms of their their mental health? So consistent with prior research, people that have no doubts, people that are kind of stable in their their participation, they tend to fare the best. So they tend to have the the highest, or you know. They tend to have the, the highest mental health scores in terms of, you know, what is good mental health. They tend to experience the least amount of depression. Mm -hmm. um, but it gets a little more complicated when you look at people who have considered dropping out. I actually find that the people who leave are better off than the people who stay. And this is not necessarily inconsistent with prior research either that shows people who are certain whether that be certainty in their faith or lack of faith tend to fare better than people that are kind of in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so sociologists talk about it as sort of a curvilinear relationship between religious commitment and health, where a convinced atheist might look very similar in terms of mental health to a convinced Christian or Muslim or, or Buddhist. But people who are kind of in the middle and doubting or questioning, they often fare the worst. Mm -hmm. Um, this is just another aside and I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to phrase this, uh, well, but you know, uh, when I just think about my own mental health, right. And mm -hmm. uh, I think about like, uh, academia in, uh, as a thing to do, you know, I, I studied for many years and in a way it was kind of like, I pursued it almost religiously to get all of these, the, uh, these qualifications, um, but now that I also do this podcast and in general for like the last five years, I, I always um, am straddling that line between like committing to academia or committing to science communication. I am not really sure about sometimes whether I want to keep straddling this line or whether I, I want to commit to one or the other. Sure. Like I'll, I'm going to leave academia or I'm going to... Um, drop some psychom activity so that I can really concentrate on my academics. And it really is like quite stressful to be like in, in that middle line and unsure of like what your future could be. Yeah. It kind of makes sense to me as you were talking about it in, in the context of uh, religious leavers. Right. And, you know, I, 
I study religion, but I don't think these processes I'm talking about are necessarily unique to religion. And in fact, you know, in, in the article, I kind of explain them using uh, identity theory, which is a social psychological theory that essentially argues, you know, the more certain we are in our identities or the ability to form an identity around something is what sort of gives us comfort, alleviates depression, gives us better mental health. And so people who drop out of organized religion are able to form an identity around being a dropout mm-hmm. or being, you know, an ex member. Right. And that can come with more certainty and more well being than sort of being in this middle yeah. ground. Yeah. I mean similarly like uh there are like alt ac uh, identities, alternative academics like that who have left the field and right. uh do whatever they do now. But yeah. I mean how how can we uh, use this knowledge to help people concerning their mental health? Well, I think one thing to to consider here. I always wonder how religious leaders and organizations might interpret my research, <laughs> and I can see them being very critical of it because, on the one hand, I have this paper that basically says if you're thinking about leaving, you should leave. Um, <laughs> but but on the other hand, I also you know think it could be viewed by some as sort of a, a call to action. You know, why do people that have these doubts feel uncomfortable in these organizations? <laughs> Or why do they experience this? Because I think, you know, most people at some point in time, regardless of the, whether it's religion or something else, as as you were saying, even academia, we can, you know, have doubts about whether or not we should continue this. There are, you know, so many hoops to jump through and it can be a long, tedious process with lots of challenges. And so I think we should consider are the organizations that we're thinking about leaving, are they supportive of people? You know, do they have policies that allow people to, you know, improve their mental health? Do they recognize that not everybody is fully committed 100% of the time? And what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And it could be as simple as having an opportunity for people to share these doubts and recognize that they're not alone in this. That, you know, think about a graduate student, for instance, you know, those that make it through, I think, often have very supportive social networks of people who also face these challenges, have doubts, and can sort of bond around that. Yeah. Definitely, there is, you know, sort of a, a way to interpret my research from the other side, which is, you know, why is it that these people who stick around in this circumstance end up worse off? Is it solely individual, which seems unlikely given the the high percentage of them, mm-hmm. or is it something about the organizations and the way they accommodate or rather don't accommodate these people? Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. So if, if we move on to the uh, other side of your research, which is looking at like work family balance and how religion plays into that too. Sure. Um, how did you start this project? Like what was, what was the initial inspiration? Right. So as a graduate student, I, I took a class on work and family. And one thing I noticed was sort of absent from that class was religion. And as I said earlier, you know, we all kind of study ourselves. Um, so in some ways, all of my research sort of relates to my own personal biography. Um, I grew up in a very, conservative Protestant home and at a very young age started to have my own doubts and that kind of inspired that line of research. Um, And also sort of viewed the way that Mm -hmm. 
my own family approached work family balance, the way, you know, the churches we were a part of talked about traditional gender roles and things like that. And so once I got to this class on work family, we're talking about a lot of things that come up in, in a Christian Protestant church. Yet religion was never a topic that was discussed in this class. And so I started to wonder how religion fits into this. And I started to look for you know, things outside the class, especially as I prepared papers for that class that brought in religion. And there, there just wasn't a lot out there. And so mm-hmm. a year or two after that class, uh, the instructor of that class, uh, Jeremy Reynolds, um, he and I worked on a paper together to look at how religion fit into some of the research he had done in the past on what he described as work, work hour mismatches. Essentially, how many hours are people working versus how many do they want to work? Some people may not be working as many hours as they want. Some people may be working exactly what they want. Some people may be working less than what they want. And so people that are working more or less have a mismatch. And while his research had looked at different explanations for work hour mismatches, he had never looked at the role religion might play in that. And so this is often how collaborations form. You have two people who have an expertise or an interest in two different areas, and they sort of bring those together into one project. And so our first paper together looked at Mm -hmm. how religion might relate to mismatch for mothers in different religions. And we were able to use a data set that was longitudinal, so followed mothers over, uh, you know, different periods of time. And we were able to see what happened as these women went from having no children to having children. And interestingly, conservative Protestant women with no children were the least likely to have a mismatch. Um, They were totally happy, you know, working the hours that they were working, I guess I shouldn't say happy. They, they, you know, we don't have information on their you know, well-being with that, but at the very least they didn't have this mismatch. They seemed to be, you know, want exactly whatever they had. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you introduced a child into the equation, that pattern completely reversed and they were the most likely to have this mismatch. Um, and the comparison groups there, we had conservative Protestant women, uh, mainline Protestant women, Catholic women, and the non-religious. And that's pretty typical of studies of the United States. You know, the U.S. is 71% Christian and then nearly 25% unaffiliated. So anytime you have a nationally representative data set, your sample sizes from non-Christian groups and the non-religious are going to be pretty small. Mm-hmm. So comparing those groups, we, we found that conservative Protestant women seem to stand out in some way. And so this then inspired additional papers, uh, one looking at work-family conflict. So the basic question there is, how often does your work life interfere with your family life? Or the opposite, how often does your family life interfere with your work life? Mm -hmm. And this is a subjective question. So, you know, we're not talking in terms of actual experiences. This is solely interpretation. And once again, conservative Protestant women kind of stood out. They were the least likely to say that they experienced work-family conflict, um, even though they were working full-time, even though they they had husbands and children. Um, And so this then led me to my current project was to sort of understand why conservative Protestant women are so different. 
Um, and I have, you know, some, some ideas again, based on some of my own experience, based on other theories, uh, mm-hmm. conservative Protestant women. Um, and so just to, just to be clear, we're talking about, uh, sort of the, the biggest group of these, the biggest, uh, religion that would fit in this category in the U S are, um, the Southern Baptist denomination, but some people, you know, use evangelical Protestant to talk about this group. A lot of non-denominational Christian churches, uh, the women who attend there and the men who would be considered conservative Protestants. So that sort of gives some context to who we're talking about. Hmm. Um, But typically the message that people get in these churches is that an ideal situation is that a husband is provider and a woman is caretaker. And this message is not consistent with a society that typically requires both partners work outside the home. You know, most people don't have the financial means for one to stay home and and the other to work. Um, But while that message might be inconsistent with the reality, these women continue to be the least likely to say that they experience work-family conflict. And so then the question becomes, well, why is that? And the other message I think that many of these women and men are getting in their, their churches is that, you know, everything is part of God's divine plan for your life. Mm-hmm. So if you have to work now, you know, maybe you won't have to work later or whatever is put in front of you is, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle is, is one way this is often phrased. I think at the very least, unlike women and other religious groups, they might have a narrative that allows them to, to reinterpret these things that other women certainly experience. It's not that they experience them more or they experience them less, but they frame them differently. And so when they're filling out that survey, they're less inclined to check the box that says, yes, I experience this conflict all the time. And so that's sort of what I'm trying to figure out right now. I don't know that I have an answer to that yet. I don't know that my, my theories or my hypotheses are, <laughs> are supported, but I, I suspect what's going on is, is not that they actually experience less work-family conflict, but that they interpret it yeah. differently. So interesting. Do you borrow like a lot of ideas or are you inspired by like findings of like other people who are working on similar questions? Yeah. Yeah, um, of course. And, you know, there's, there's sort of, there's this research on work-life balance that, like I said, has, has not traditionally incorporated religion questions and speaking to the challenge of finding data that I talked about earlier, you know, there's good data on religion. There's good data on mental health. There's good data on work family balance. There is rarely good data on all three in the same survey. So that's, you know, certainly the the biggest challenge I face and hopefully opportunities for future research and grants and things like that to to get that data. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, you know, I draw heavily on the work family literature and have continued to collaborate with Jeremy Reynolds, my co-author, who is, you know, much more knowledgeable about that area than I am. And while also looking at, you know, research on conservative Protestants, evangelicals. And some of that is, you know, academic research. And some of it is thinking about the the literature that these groups consume themselves. So, you know, there's lots of books out there by religious leaders on what it means to be a good, you know, conservative Protestant woman or wife or mother. And, Subsequently, you know, how fathers should be involved. And there have been various organizations that have come up in the last 20 years or so to, you know, help support families, which are 
if you've you know been a part of any religious organization, you know that there's a huge emphasis on on family in those organizations mm-hmm. uh, because many of them realize they depend on families, you know, to to socialize children into their their faith and their beliefs, and to to have children that they bring up in these faiths. Otherwise, you know the the religious organizations that are declining the fastest are the ones that you go into and you, you see there aren't any young people here. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of literature on, on families in religion that is not necessarily academic, but is important to understand, to understand what the people you study are mm-hmm. consuming. And uh, like, and, and we're presumably like uh, a lot of the uh, data that is available, they'll pre- be predominated by like people who are um, like the participants of these surveys. They'll, they'll mainly be Christians, right? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, like I said earlier, the the general social survey, nationally representative data set, the the portraits of American life surveys, another I've used. It's a nationally representative data set. But typically you're talking, you know, 1,500, 2,000, 2,500 cases, which is all we need to generalize to the population. Mm -hmm. But that means that, you know, in that 2,500, you may have four people who are Muslim or, you know, 10 people who are Jewish. You, You won't get a lot of cases because as a percentage of the American population, those groups are very small. Yeah. And so you end up with survey samples that are 70% Christian and 20% non-religious and 6% everything else. Yeah. And then if you want to include the everything else, you end up having to combine them into a single category, which, you know, doesn't have a lot of explanatory power because the people that are lumped together in that other group are, you know, can be extremely different in their own beliefs and practice and Mm -hmm. the persecution they face being non-Christian in certain parts of the United States and and things like Mm -hmm. that. I mean, when we're talking about like religion and work family balance or uh, religion and mental health, um, is there anything that uh, others have done or that we can say about members of other faiths? Well, there certainly has has been research in the, the area of mental health on other faiths. And, you know, sociology, probably more so than, than anthropology, has a, has a problem of tending to focus on the United States and Christianity and sort of what would be similar to Christian forms of religious practice. So focusing on what happens in congregations or, or churches. And so while there is certainly some out there, it's, it's very limited in scope. You know, sociologists of religion based in the United States are publishing in journals that are housed in organizations that are in the United States. And so, you know, there's just not a lot of research out there on, on other communities, um, which, you know, I think is in some ways counter to a discipline like anthropology that, you know, at least from my perspective, has has been built around the study of other cultures mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, um, and then the work family literature. You know, they're they're just there's almost nothing on religion in, in any capacity, Christian or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially because a lot of this doesn't come out of sociology necessarily, but comes out of business schools and people interested in the the work side right. of the equation. Where you know, I think for for a lot of them. 
they may not be considering all the different aspects of, of social life that, that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fact that they, you know, have started to see family as something that can have an effect on people's work experiences, you know, I think that was a, a great step in and of itself. And, you know, it might be a while before we get to religion. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Uh, how, how have uh, recent political events or, I don't know, maybe the things political figures have said or done affected your research proposals and even maybe your interpretation of results in the last few years? Um, I don't know that they've had a huge effect on my own research. Certainly, you know, I think the biggest thing that affects all social scientists is constant threats to the funding that's available. Mm-hmm. So through the National Science Foundation and other other government organizations, uh, whether it's a funding freeze or actually slashing the amount of money that's available to, to different programs. Um, sometimes this is simply talk, you know, we're going to cut this funding. Sometimes it actually happens. And that affects all of us, regardless of the type of research we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that anything in the political environment necessarily affects the type of questions I ask or whether or not I, you know, publish my results or how I think about interpreting them. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, I think so a lot of religious leaders, for instance, might look at my results as, you know, and be very critical of them when I say things like, if you're, you're thinking about quitting religion, you, you should probably do that for your mental health. And that might, you know, go against some government positions or some politicians' stances and views. And that may, you know, somewhere down the line, I suppose, limit my funding. But my guess is most people in those sorts of powerful positions are not reading my work or considering what I do. So (laughs) I'm not not too concerned about it. I guess like, uh, because you're using a lot of secondary data, um, as well as part of your work, like a lot of that was capturing like a different time anyway, like they were capturing like five or 10 or 15 years. Um, and so it'll take some time for, you know, new surveys, like the ones that you are designing to capture what's going on right now. Exactly. There's always, there's always a lag, especially when you factor in things like the, the publishing process and how long it can take to, you know, put a project together and get it under review and, Mm -hmm. you know, might go to several journals before it's finally published. And so, you know, that can, that can take a substantial amount of time. So there's definitely a a lag there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think we're increasingly interested in mental health though, recognizing that it's a, you know, an important issue. I think there's still certainly a stigma associated with depression and anxiety and things like that. But for the first time, I think more people are taking mental health seriously. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's definitely a, a need for this type of research and the the changing nature of religion and religious organizations. Um, and, you know, politically, family is always, you know, seems doesn't matter what side of the political aisle people are on, you know, families are an important topic and people, you know, I think everybody makes the case that they're, they're pro family. And part of that is thinking about how families balance the demands of modern life, which includes work and religion and, and other activities. So regardless of, of where people fall politically, I think there's a, a need for the type of research that 
I'm doing and other social scientists are doing. Definitely. So, you know, um, we've, we're closing the show soon and um, we've been talking a lot about like health and, and work family life. I'm curious to know, like, what do you do outside your work to find the right balance between research and taking time out for yourself? Yeah. So, so I mentioned earlier, I was an athlete in college. Um, I ran cross country and track and I, I still run. So, cool. you know, ex- exercise is often a sort of a way that people uh, escape some of the demands. And uh, I'd say that also, you know, some of my biggest research dilemmas and challenges have been solved on a run, you know, mm-hmm. kind of get away from the office and out in the woods and, and suddenly the, the brilliant thought comes to you. <laughs> I mean, like, I think it's like hormones, right? They uh, stimulate their activity. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> definitely uh, run it, running has been my, my major uh, source of, positive mental health in my life for the, the last 20 plus years. If you don't mind me asking, uh, uh, you, you brought up that, you know, a lot of sometimes some of the directions that you take in your research or the things that you think about are, are influenced by some of your earlier experiences. And I was wondering, like, what do your, your friends and family think about your research and your findings? Um, some of them, I, I think, don't really know what I do or what I study. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because, because like I said, I grew up in a very conservative religious family and, and I myself am, am not that at all. And, you know, there were certainly some, some arguments and, and conflicts and struggles that came about when I was a teenager because of that and sort of the doubts that I had and how that affected my own mental health at the time. And, uh, so, you know, I think a lot of times when it comes to my family, we just don't talk about it. We just, you know, We don't think about it that way. But at the same time, you know, some of my, my closest friends, you know, have similar experiences with their own families, but will share those experiences with me because they know what I do and they know what I study. And so it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier of having those support networks, you know, finding people, whether it be in religion or outside of religion that, you know, can at the very least listen to the things you're going through, but also, you know, offer insights into their own experiences. So I have, you know, one friend in particular that I, you know, I'd call him a a closet atheist. (laughs) He, you know, to his family and friends, they, they have no idea um, what the true beliefs are, but you know, he, he confides in me because he, he knows what I study and sort of my own story and how, (laughs) research, uh, you know, supports his experience and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. And like, uh, you know, I, I study, um, human, like archeology, span human evolution. And, um, but I do have like members of my family back in Hong Kong. A lot of them are Catholic because of the, um, the missions that took place there a long time ago. And like, I, I study human evolution, <laughs> but, um, but I also, you know, I also still go with my grandma on Sunday to a mass because I don't know, because it's like important to me to spend time with her. And she it's really meaningful to her that I spend time with her going to church. And, um, but that's, that's just how we are like, uh, as humans, like all of us have like a unique individual sort of journey and, things that we care about and like decisions that we make. Right. And, you know, to, to your example there too, I think it's important to recognize that belief is just one aspect of religion, you know, especially as a sociologist or social scientist more broadly, you know, belonging mm-hmm. the community, 
those are also important aspects of religion. And so, you know, as I said earlier, you know, a lot of people go regularly and don't agree at all with the the beliefs of the organization or its message or anything like that, but they continue to show up every week because of the community aspect of it. Yeah. The, the social networks that it provides and the, the support when, you know, tough times happen. And those things are sort of independent of whether or not you believe in a higher power or hmm. reincarnation or, or any of the basic tenets and principles of the faith. You know, lots of people still get that, you know, community aspect or it could be the ritual yeah. of it, you know. So I think there's, there's a lot of dimensions to this that, that draw people in for, for a variety of reasons. For sure. This has been really great to find out more about like your, your important work and interesting work. If people want to ask you any questions about it and this interview, can they find you somewhere online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter at Matt May PhD. Um, my email uh, is M M A Y two at Oakland.edu. Um, I'm happy to, to, you know, share my research. I'm on Google Scholar. Uh, so people can find my, my publications there if they want to, to read more. Um, awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me on and letting me ramble on about my, <laughs> my research interests. And <laughs> yeah, it was really fascinating to me. Um, before you go, uh, usually I ask every guest uh, if they can also come up with a hashtag. Now, usually it's like something funny or something that we that you care about, something that we've talked about, um, something meaningful. Is there a good hashtag you can think of that's unique to this episode? Hmm. Well, we've <laughs> talked about religion. We've talked about mental health. We've talked about work-life balance. Um, I guess maybe hashtag to your health. <laughs> to your health? T-O-Y-O-U-R health. <laughs> okay. What's the meaning of that? Well, I think, you know, regardless of what we're talking about here, the emphasis is the emphasis is on uh, improving our well-being. And so, you know, for some people, health comes through religion. For some people, it comes through non-religion. For some people, it comes through having, you know, a good work-life balance. And for some people, it comes through, uh, you know, being committed to one of those domains and maybe not so much to the other. Yeah. And for some, it comes through running and exercise. So regardless of what we're talking about, you know, I think the goal of my research is to think about how do we reduce stress for people's lives and improve their health. So kind of more like a, a cheers sort mm -hmm. of idea to your health. That's really good. I like that one. So uh, listeners, you have the hashtag. If you want to indicate on social media that you've heard the whole thing, use the hashtag. Uh, to your health. I want to say thank you to the patrons for supporting the show and keeping it going. If you would also like to find out more about the benefits of becoming a patron of the Arcananth podcast, then go to patreon.com slash Pod. Follow Matt at MattMayPhD on Twitter. And the podcast is also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit at Pod. If you want to listen to our interviews with all of our previous guests as well, you can go to iTunes, Spotify, or the podcast website, Arcananth.com. Matt, uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to appear on the show. Thanks again for having me. Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye to everyone.